You're listening to Angel Insights, the show that brings you interviews with some of the world's most prominent angel investors, and today's guest most certainly lives up to that title. Peter Cowley is an entrepreneur and very active angel investor, being named Angel of the Year for 2014. Peter is also a Cambridge University engineering graduate who has founded and run technology and construction businesses for 35 plus years, and since then has angel invested in over 45 startups in Cambridge and London. He's also a non-executive director in five of those startups and for over 15 years Peter has been involved in charity and social enterprise governance as chair and treasurer of various trustee boards and Peter is also a board member of the Cambridge Angels and has mentored countless entrepreneurs. He set up and now runs the Martlet Startup Investment Fund of Marshall of Cambridge and is a fellow in entrepreneurship of the Cambridge Judge Business School. Ladies and gentlemen it is without further ado that I introduce to you Peter Cowley. Peter, welcome to Angel Insights. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harry. Now, I'd love to start off by hearing uh, how you got into the world of angel investing. I mean, winning Angel of the Year 2014, but what's your origin story? Um, My background is uh, originally at uni, I did technology and engineering, that was a very long time ago, and uh, moved from that into corporate life for a few years, and then after that corporate life in London, I moved to join a smallish company in Germany. Um, It was a supplier to the corporate, and that company got sold on within a year, so a couple of us uh, decided to leave and set up our own business. So that was my first entrepreneurial experience back in 1981, and over the next 30 or so years, I uh, was involved in a number of startups, probably about a dozen startups, uh, in tech and in property. And... um, about seven or eight years ago, I was I'd come, I'd come back to Cambridge by that point, and I was mentoring um, somebody, or well, mentoring several people. But I invested in one of them, and we exited that business quite quickly in less than three years to a pretty well-known software company here in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And from that, I realised it wasn't really an angel invest. I was sort of co- co-founder, but with a fairly small stake. I uh, knew a number of the angels here in Cambridge anyway, so I just thought, oh, this is quite fun, Uh, let's give this a go. So I got involved with um, a group well-known in Cambridge here, the Cambridge Angels, and uh, started investing strongly since then. So basically the background is primarily entrepreneurial and then angel investing for seven, eight years. Um, But I've also got another stream, which is charity governance. So I've been chair and treasurer of a whole stack of charities over the over the last 16 or so years. So I've got, uh, which is many charities and social enterprises. So I've got quite a lot of background there as well. And you mentioned that Cambridge Angels, and we've seen a rise of angel networks over the last few years. How important and reassuring do you think it is for angels to have a network of co-investors that they can talk to and assess deals with. Do you think it's very important? I think it's very, very important. I think it's very difficult. Ignoring crowdfunding, I think it's very difficult for anybody who wants to become a an angel with a decent portfolio to find those deals, except going through a network of some form. There are plenty of angels out there who only invest in friends from the golf club or, or their children or, or, or cousins, you know, nephews or whatever. But the, the angel group gives... A, 
which, whichever angel group it is, and as you say, there are a lot of them around the UK, it gives great access to deal flow, but it gives a lot more than that. It gives, apart from the sort of collegiate networking side of it, it gives education, it, it, it allows, and that's where I learned everything, you know, so sort of angel investing 101, joining the Cambridge Angels, learns huge amounts to the point now where I'm actually teaching rather than learning. Uh, though I'm still learning, of course, as you'd expect. It's something you'll learn forever, something like this. <laughs> and you mentioned there about kind of, you know, deal flow uh, and deal sourcing. And I'd love to today discuss the investment process with you, um, providing a walkthrough. So so what are your preferred or most effective methods of, of deal sourcing? Are you a demo day hackathon style man or are you much more of a, a close contacts and relationships? Um uh, neither really, though of course this has changed over the years. When I started investing, I, most of the deal flow I got was from the Cambridge Angels, who uh, I could go through that process, but we, the group, there were about 60 or so of the group, and the group invested about eight, nine, ten new deals a year. Um, but I, as I've gradually got better now, now I, I'm sort of fairly well known as a, a brand, an angel myself, and therefore I get deals coming to me. Absolutely, I, angel of the year 2014. <laughs> Congratulations. That's a fantastic achievement. Yes, yeah, we could go into that more length and wh- why I happened to be in the right place at the right time for that, but I'm sure there are good reasons why I was given <laughs> Um Anyway, so nowadays I get, and the sort of numbers are, I probably see about 750 business plans of various sorts, either pictures or come by email a year, which is far too many to, to almost to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the filtering down from there uh, to the point where I invest about, Eight, eight new deals a year, six, seven, eight, perhaps nine new deals a year. Um, but, of course, of those 750s, one would expect most of them go straight in, well, I, I try and reply to them all, but most of them go just straight in the, in the bin. Uh, the ones that get through much more easily, uh, which is the same in most walks of life, are the ones that have come in with some sort of warm referral. So that means either somebody's approached me directly at... Um, at an event, or a friend who I co-invest with and trust has, has said, come on, Peter, have a look at this one. So the warmer they are, the more likely I'm going to look at them, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and then when you found those companies, do you have a criteria for investment? I mean, you know, you said there that a lot of them sadly end up in the in the bin. It's the nature of the investing game. But what makes you pick up a company and be excited by the investment opportunity? Kind of what does the DD look like? Well, first of all, um, I'm very open about this, and I have a website, petercowley.org, and on the investment page of that, there are my 16, which I've just altered, actually, this morning, as it turned out, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're a continuous process of uh, adjusting, so I don't end up with things that I clearly won't invest in, which would primarily be to see, and service businesses are the two. So those criteria, those 16 criteria, which anybody can look at, show what I'm interested in. Also, the whole of my portfolio there, the 40-odd companies, including the failures and the, and the exits are all on that page. So if people look at that, they can get a feel for what I'm, I'm going to invest in. So that's that's just saying when it gets to, but once it gets to me, the you know what do I look at first? I look at the people, of course. I mean, um, there are there's an adage around which you know many of your listeners probably heard that you can a great team with a poor idea will probably be make some success. A 
wonderful idea with a poor team probably won't go anywhere. So it's the people in the end that are going to be the ones that want backing. Of course, they need to have a, an idea of some form. They need to have understood whether there is a market opportunity for it. They need to understand how much finance they need, dot, dot, dot. So that's the due diligence that you just mentioned, going through the process of working out whether the whether whether to back the team to achieve what they're intending to or what they're tr trying to intend to do at this moment. Now, of course, as we've all heard, pivoting occurs and ideas change. So that's another part of picking the right team that, or team or, or the, the founders, at least the original founders, that they will listen and listen to the market, listen to whatever, whoever else talks, and. Um, Obviously, they still need to be focused, and they still need to really believe in what they're doing. But they will, they will then change direction to, you know, build a business with the um, with all the resources they've been given, including cash. Mm -hmm. And one of your criteria, uh, I have to admit, I did actually read uh, the 16 criteria on the website, um, but one of them is a market opportunity of 100 million or more. Now, for me, having spoken to many VCs who obviously look for the billion uh, mark. How do you think that then differs then to VCs? Do you think angels do accept uh, smaller returns because of the, the smaller input? Or, or what are your thoughts on that and how VCs <laughs> and angels differ in general then? First of all, I don't think it's true that angels accept lower returns. I mean, they um, they obviously invest earlier than VCs, so therefore on a, on, you'd only need a £50 million exit, say, for the angels if they'd gone in at £1 million, pounds, uh, bearing in mind there'd be dilution on the way, to get something like a 20x. Mm -hmm. Whereas if a VC is going in at, say, an £8 million valuation, a £50 million exit with a bit of dilution probably means it gets a 3 or 4x. So the, the possibilities in terms of the, multi, the multiple of investment of the original investment can be, will be very much higher, or can be very which with angels. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the later stage is lower risk. Well, first of all, in terms of market size, the reason I put £100 million, pounds, euros, or dollars is that uh, there are many exits. We can't all chase these unicorns or decacorns, as I heard for the first time. I heard that too. Well, yeah. did, did we, there's also the sphincter of... Yes. Sphincter of Unicorns, was it? Uh, yes, Wendy Tan. The, that was brilliant. <laughs> that was a brilliant, yes. Where, where, where this has been compressed down to such a, such a small orifice that, uh, that nothing's popping out at the moment. <laughs> we could go into that. Great. No, we won't go into depth of that. So, yeah, the, the reason 100 million is that that's actually big enough to get a really good return. If, you've got, if you go into a low valuation of a million, million and a half or something, then something that's uh, in a market space that's going to be worth 100 million, they won't capture it all, but even if they capture a few million, then you've got the opportunity for a 5, 10, 15 million exit. What we shouldn't all chase, and, and both you know, offline and the crowd, angels should not always be going for these big, big ones. They are not like that. If you take the average, uh, apparently, if you take the average exit over the last 10 years of a startup in the UK, ignoring the fact that most of startups probably won't exit in that time frame because they'll either die or become lifestyle businesses or, or decent-sized businesses, it's only 5 million or something, 5 to 10 million, the exit value. Therefore, you're not going to get the biggies so therefore you know and a five to ten million exit would easily work within a hundred million or so market size which is why i'm not chasing the billion or the trillion in some cases market size i'm quite happy with one that's that's comfortably big but not huge mm -hmm. and the, but of course but going back to what you said the vcs different matter altogether they they're putting much large amounts in they're working probably on a binary basis in many cases you put it in and it doesn't work you you know you're going to make a 20 or 30x on another one whereas angels you've got a, it's a portfolio you've got to spread out the risk and you you know you accept a few two and three x's and that's really good news because that'll give you a, a reasonable irr as long as you've got a few of those and even if you don't get any 20 x's as long as you don't get too many failures of course mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And then moving a little more to the specifics now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on flat rounds. What, what yeah. are the initial thoughts on that? So bear in mind that even if the with flat share price, the, the post money of the previous round is the pre money of the next round. So so flat round, I had a look at my, just did a bit of stats on my investments. And of the, um, I've done 45 investments or so, so far. Uh, the, I've done 43 further rounds. And of those 43, 17 were flat, you know, as in share price, mm-hmm. the same. So that's why one in three or so, one in, more than one in three, it's almost 40% of those. had one down round, uh, and the rest of them, the other 25, were up rounds. And some I didn't invest in, in fact. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, rounds occur when cash is running out, as you'd imagine. <laughs> well, that's usually the case for very early stage. Later on, the rounds might occur for growth, but that's usually when you get into VC style. So, you know, the rounds, so often you'll hear an entrepreneur saying, they're less so now, actually, than a few years ago, saying, oh, we only need one round. We'll get to operational profitability and then exit with one round. That is not the case. <laughs> that's a not... nice idea. <laughs> well, yes, it's, it's uh, yeah, a dream. <laughs> it's not even an idea. Um, and uh, so, so, therefore... You know, the, the journey starts, the money's put in, everybody's very happy and everything's rosy, and they move forward. And then it's fine for whatever reason. I mean, it could be something really deep, like the technology doesn't work, but it's more likely that there's a product market mismatch of some form. And that just takes time. And time means that sales aren't coming in or cont- and contribution for sales, and they're, and they're still burning. They've still got the salaries. They've still got the, uh, all the other overhead costs. So it gets to a point where... You know they haven't got there. It's not 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 achieved what was promised in the first place. Mm-hmm. So therefore, more money's needed. Now, that money. Why, if you look at it logically, from the point of where the money was put in with a set of promises to the the point where the money's running out. You know, running out is obviously bad news. That's complete failure. But th- at that point, it's unlikely that certainly between the first round and the second round that it will be failure will be imminent unless something drastic happens, like the, the teams all you know the founders have fallen apart or something, um, or the technology will never work. So you've got to the point where you need more money. But why then, in principle, should that valuation be any higher than it was before because they haven't achieved what they put in. They probably haven't necessarily. Obviously, times have elapsed. Things have happened. They've talked to a lot of customers or potential customers. They've done some stuff with the tech. But it isn't necessarily enough of it to warrant a much higher valuation. And I'll go back to what I first just said, that the the pre-money of one round is the post of the previous round. Now, the previous round is the original valuation, i.e. the pre-money, plus the investment. So it's already gone up a step up when the round occurred. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, and it, and it can be seen as a bit of a punishment, of course, which is to some extent, because you're diluting, and you're diluting the founders, which you, you know, you may have to compensate for, we'll talk about that in a minute, but you're also diluting the original investors, which is probably including you as well. Mm-hmm. So, Look at it the other way around. Look at it. Do, does this company justify a, an upbrand, an increased share price? Now, if they do, clearly they'll ask for it and they'll get it. But it is like buying a house or, um, well, not buying a house, say, on an estate, but buying an unusual house. It, it's a marketplace, isn't it? And, and there'll be buyers and sellers. And if the buyers won't buy the shares, what on earth is the seller, i.e. the founding team, going to do? Mm-hmm. And, and with the flat share price, though, we obviously said that maybe the company hasn't provided what it said it would. So are there any signals that an investor can, can look for to show that enough has been done to make the flat round worth investing in, be it availability of new technologies or discoveries or new hires, whatever it is? Is there something 
that that makes an investor want to invest again, even though they haven't achieved what they said they should or would have done? Yeah, well, there's, there's two parts to that, the answer to this. One is that when one first invests, and I think the offline investors are probably better at this than the online investors, you've got to allocate two or three times what you first put in for helping that company through these initial stages. Therefore, if you put five K pounds in, you've got to have a you know seven and a half, ten K available in reserve that you haven't allocated to anything else for that company, which will be needed over the next few years. So you know the fact that you need going back to the original shareholders they, you know, is a, will mean that they, or should mean that they, there is some money there available. The concept of increasing the value or investing in the next round, one should also look at it as a new investment as well. So clearly it's a moral obligation to continue with the company. There's some uh, element of um, protecting the money you've already put in. Um, and, and and the relationship we've got with the founders, so you you know that that says yes, you must put in the extra the next five k if they're asking for the same amount again. Um, but you must also look at it as as a independently as well. Is this company worth investing in? Now, of course, you'll do less due diligence because you've done it before, and you've got the the great uh, asset of actually following the team. One hopes if you're close enough to them and they they pass back shareholder informa- information to the shareholders, so you can actually see what that journey's been like. Now. Of course, if they've lied there along the way or something, or, or some, you know, there's lots of things that could go wrong in that journey. The most, most likely, unfortunately, is bad shareholder communication. So if uh, they come back to you, you're not on the board, you don't know the person on the board, perhaps, and they come back to you for some more money, having not talked to you since the last round, are you likely to invest? Pretty unlikely. Okay, so so there a lack of communication, one reason. And you said forty percent of your investments have been flat share prices. Yes. So are there any other signs that an investor should take as a reason to be worried and not invest in a follow-on round? Um, well, first of all, to go back to what I just said, you should allocate it anyway. You should, you know, there's a moral obligation to continue to fund the company in the next round. Now, um, are there any signs to avoid that? Um, what would do you really uh, think there is a moral obligation if a founder hasn't uh, achieved what he said he would or what he promised or, or achieved the vision? Do you th- still hold a moral obligation? It's very, very rare for sophisticated angel investors not to invest again, knowing that the original amount of money will will not have achieved what was promised. So it's just it's just life. I mean, if you think about it, what's happening at the when a, 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 um, a founder comes to investors, they're selling something, they're selling shares, they're selling their vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're in sales mode, and and lots of things can get in the way, and there are all kinds of good reasons. It's it's rare that there's a bad reason uh, that's happened between the first round and the second round that that should prevent you from uh, investing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, going back to the question, are there any other um, elements that would prevent you from following on? So why would I not follow on? I would not follow on primarily if I really had lost faith at that point. So even though I say there's a, there's a moral obligation to continue to support the business, if I really found for some reason there was something I really didn't like, now that, that would be, I mean, I, I could give you examples, but I won't do it because this, this is a public um, uh, podcast. But um, where there's, there's, a, you know, there's one particular example where a piece of the tech just couldn't work. It could never work. And at that stage, then, I didn't follow on. The founder was great at selling, and uh, he managed to get funding from other people. Uh, so there are 
specific cases. I wouldn't say there's any anything generic at all, apart from something really drastic happening, which it would uh, say the the founding team breaking up, perhaps one of the founders leaving, uh, that should say right under these circumstances you mustn't follow on. You just have to look at it again as if it's another round. Look at it. You've got more information than I said before, and then make a decision on that. But in general, it would be rare, and it, uh, uh, the number of times I didn't invest, he seven times out of. For, uh, out of 50, so that's, what's that, 14%. So only 40, 14% of the time have has there been a round where I haven't followed on. And associated with flat rounds is obviously a slight public perception that all is, is, is not so well. How do founders then, you know, founders then obviously have to give away more equity, but how do we keep founders motivated and keep the team motivated in the cases of a flat share price or even a down round? How can we keep team morale high and founders incentivized? If you're talking about financial incentive, then it, it shouldn't be salary because they're not, they're not aligned if they're just taking salary out of the business. And that's, you know, the three or four out of every ten that go into either zombie or lifestyle mode is where the founders are quite happy with it, what their lifestyle, but they're not actually going working towards an exit. You, one can do it by giving options to the founders, which uh, is used occasionally. Um, in many cases, particularly if the valuation is too high, and we might come to this later, valuations have, have shot up in the last few years, um, then they're already owning a, a good chunk of the company, even after another another round, which is a flat round. But you're right, there has to be. There has to be a point. There's no point in supporting a company where the founders lost interest, um, that, you know, that they will disappear, they'll go off and do something else before long. Again, in my war story slide, in fact, it's the first one on the top, which you, you can't see and you haven't seen. It's where the fa- founder lost interest <laughs> and then um, over a period of time, actually managed to sell the business, as it turned out, but, uh, but you know, the vision had gone at that point. And that, that only had ever had one round that, so <laughs> we didn't have that conversation. Mm. And you mentioned there about valuations. What, what's your take on the current uh, system of valuations in terms of the ecosystem <laughs> now? I mean, it is um, high, to say the least, in, in a lot of cases. So what's your take on it? Well, yeah, funny if I'm giving a lecture tomorrow morning at the uh, tomorrow afternoon at the Judge Business School to a whole stack of founders in IoT about that. One of my slides is how angels uh, value a business. Um, the valuation is... Uh, there's no... obviously. There's no fixed and fast rule. There can't be. You can't say, um, take an exit valuation somewhere. Exit valuation can do a bit of comparison, particularly if there's, there's similarities, but you can't do it with the startups. You, know, you can't say that because that company there that's doing this B2C app got a you know, 2 million valuation, I deserve a 2 million valuation. You can't do that at all. You've just got to, clearly from the entrepreneur's viewpoint, they want to have it as high as possible, and from the investor's viewpoint, they want it as realistic as possible should bear in mind that if you have it too high, then future rounds, when it gets into professional money, i.e. VCs, there'll be a pretty nasty correction if you can carry on getting money there, if you start too high. And that investment journey's got to be very carefully monitored so there's no kinks in it. Difficult to do because, as I say, in the very early stage, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an art and not a science. Mm-hmm. Um, the part of the valuation problem, inverted commas, is driven by tax reliefs, of course, in the UK. The tax reliefs, the EIS and SAS, have, um, have meant that a lot more startups are going, are being formed, and that's really, really great news for the economy, you know, really becoming known throughout Europe and, and to some extent throughout the whole world as being uh, the place to, to start a new business up. Um, but the, so the tax reliefs are good, but the tax reliefs also allowing people or investors to take slightly higher risks of, than they would do if they didn't have that relief, and that has pushed valuations out. The um, 
that's another another reason is that there is actually more money floating around at the moment in angel investing than there was a few years ago. That some of that money will dry up once interest rates start going up, um, or if there's any form of market downturn, you know, economic downturn. Sorry, um, but it's uh, you know I don't invest. I mean, we're, we're known in Cambridge for not investing at ridiculous valuation, or what we regard as ridiculous valuations. I'm sure we're regarded rather negatively by some of the community in London for that. But in the end, you know, only one or two or possibly three at the very outside will have more than a 1x on, on, on statistically on exit. So, you know, if you invest too, at too high valuation to start with, then <laughs> and you, you, you're going to lose out in the end. Absolutely. So then how do you assess the valuations? You said about your slide for, for the talk tomorrow. How do you then, as an angel, assess the valuation of a company? Okay, so how, how do angels actually value startups? Well, um, <laughs> the first thing to do is, we, in order to mitigate the risk of all the various failures or non, non-entities or zombie-type businesses, we aim to make a 10x return within 5 to 10 years. Um, if you do some statistical analysis on that 10x, if we get... Uh, one or two 10x's, we won't get two, we'll get one on average, and the whole lot uh, pays back the the um, the failures and the ones that never exit to give about a 20-25% return, which seems very high, but at the same time the risk is astronomical. So that's that's just generally what, what you know, that's part of the valuation, that's the number there, but the valuation is actually based on clearly on the team, on the product, on the IP, on the uh, all the various things that we've already talked about, market attractiveness, attractiveness and traction. Um, what what funding is going to be required on the way. If you're investing in a new form of drug, you know that it might cost $500 million to get to market. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, but if you're investing in an app, which you know can be put on an app store and, and most of the investment's not going in tech but going in marketing, then you know perhaps £500,000 might be enough. Mm. Um, obviously, we analyse you know, whether the plan's likely to be met, go through you know, whether there's going to be a... Whether, you know, the usual are that there's a finance risk, I can't raise enough money, there's an, a marketing risk, i.e. there's no product market fit, there's maybe a technological risk, there's a, there's a people risk, and just work out, you know, from that, again, it, there's no hard and fast rules here, and it'd be great if there were, um, but, but, but people involved, and people vary, of course, um, so you, you, you work out this risk. Planning, although other angels disagree with me, um, exit planning from day one, so working out what this business will be exited to uh, or, or IPO'd and at what point and having a, a rough idea of what funding might be needed. Mm-hmm. And also who's hanging around, you know, whether there's an investor director on the board that, and I always insist on the investor director, I would never invest in a business that didn't have a, uh, somebody representing my interests on the board. Uh, how critical is that? How good is that person? How critical is that person to the success of the business, etc.? And that could so, be yeah. like a lead investor, correct? Uh, it's common that the lead investor becomes the investor director. So the person who's leading the investment through generally, though not always, becomes the investor director. Exactly. And if it's okay with you, we're going to move into a quick fire round now. Yeah. Favourite podcast? Favourite podcast? Um, actually, I've listened to two that I really enjoy at the moment. One is uh, Inside Health, which is a BBC programme, which is just generally about medical, the body and medical. And there's another one by a guy called Bloomberg, Alex Bloomberg, which is called The Startup. Brilliant, that, isn't it? I don't use the essence of that. Love it. It's Love the narrative. Podcast, podcast on a podcast, Startup. <laughs> and I really like that, so... Oh, no, fantastic. Absolutely the same. And then if you could give founders one piece of advice, what would it be? It's listen. 
I mean that's that's a generic piece of advice, but just listen, listen to, listen to founders, listen to sorry, listen to yeah, listen to other co-founders, listen to other people in the ecosystem, listen to your investors clearly, listen to the market, just listen. Don't don't assume you you know don't be arrogant about things. Don't assume you've got it right. Just listen. And then the hardest aspect of angel investing. In fact, it's not the losses. Um, and, and although, albeit that there's a bit of tax relief on the losses, this, you're still losing 50 to 50, 60 percent or so of the money you've invested. It's um, two things really. One, one is coping with investees that uh, used to listen and don't listen any longer. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not saying that I'm always right, and it's not always me that's giving the advice, but uh, I've got one at the moment where the valuation is, is five times more uh, at the moment than it was in February this yes this year and that person doesn't seem to want to listen at the well, moment. that's some sterling <laughs> growth they've had. <laughs> not. Not. Uh, so, yeah. And then which angels do you most respect and admire? Well, I'm not going to name names, uh, but it's those that add the most value. So uh, whether that's value to their investee companies, whether that's value to the ecosystem, um, in terms of educating other angels or, or promoting best practice or whatever. So it's, it, there are, there's a small group in the UK, uh, I won't say how many, but the ones that add very high value, and they're the ones I respect the most. Mm-hmm. And how do you measure your success then as an investor? How much fun I'm having. So it's, uh, there will be at some point a, a re- day of reckoning. Uh, my wife is an accountant, so and the money's coming out of our, our joint account. So at some point, so it's it's the fun on the way. I would really, really, really like uh, if I look back at it in ten years' time to have a, at least a one x on everything. Um, uh, in fact, probably one x plus whatever interest I've lost on the capital. Um, uh, obviously, a good good success. I have got two or three in my portfolio that I will, should uh, make a ten x or something like that, which will pay for the whole portfolio plus more. So, but in the end, my success will be the, is the journey through the angel investing and helping helping the founders. And then finally, your most recent investment and why you said yes. Um, I've got two just closing at the moment, which I won't mention because the legals are still being discussed. But the the most recent investment I've done is a company called Converge, uh, which, in fact, I deal led on. I don't often need deals any longer because I'm so busy, but uh, this is a couple of guys who'd been um, actually Cambridge University grads, been through Entrepreneur First, which is... Alice Bunting, yeah. Yeah, Alice and Matt, yeah. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, Probably the best programme in in the UK at the moment, and um, popped out of that, and I just like it. It's a sector I really like, which is... Uh, Internet of Things. I know it's very hypey that, but there's still lots to be done there, and it's B two B, and they're just really great guys to work with. Um, so uh, that's that's definitely the the uh, my most recent. And I said yes because of the guys. No, I mean the market's huge. It, I read somewhere that it could be a trillion dollar market in yes, time. Yes, it could. Yeah, I did a deep dive uh, on it. it. It is definitely a huge market. So it doesn't re- doesn't matter in this case that there's lots of other competition. Around these guys listen. They they concentrate. We're in a specific, incredibly tight niche at the moment of B two B. But we will be in other niches in time. We have enough money to last eighteen months without any you know customer income. So we've got plenty of time to get to the point where we can raise a, a decent round, perhaps beginning you know, towards the end of next year. So no, it's just I said yes because of the guys, the two guys. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Um, Thank you so much for giving up your time. Good. Excellent. Thank you very much, Harry.
And I would like to say a huge thank you to Peter for giving up his time today to be on the show. So amazing to hear his insights and experiences into the world of angel investing. And if you'd like to hear more from Syndicate Room and Angel Insights, you can head over to the website at www.syndicateroom.com or follow us on Twitter at Syndicate Room. But before we leave you today, I would like to say a special thank you to Plantronics, a global leader in audio communications for businesses and consumers. They have pioneered new trends in audio technology, creating innovative products that allow people to simply communicate, from unified communication to Bluetooth headsets, which we're using here at Syndicate Room. They deliver uncompromising quality. Plantronics is used by every company in the Fortune 100, as well as blue lights, air traffic control, and various mission-critical applications for those on the front line. Thank you so much, as always, for your continued support in listening to Angel Insights. I would love to hear what you think of the show, and you can email me at harry at syndicateroom.com. Thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you in next week's episode.